I've been finding it shocking this year, just every day, how big those numbers are for how many people have died. That day, or the previous day, with COVID on the death certificates. Just shockingly big figures of over a thousand people every day. I don't know how many people die each day normally. Normally it's hidden and we don't think about it and we don't get the reminder. But now we're getting those reminders. There's a lot of people dying. Death is staring us more clearly than usual in the face. And I think it's showing something up. I think it's showing up. It used to seem to me, oh, modern humans have got over the fear of death. Uh, yes, people don't want to die in a nasty way, but they're basically over the fear of death. You know, religion was needed in the past to help people because they were afraid of death, but we've got over that. Well, it doesn't look like it at the moment. People look pretty afraid of death. Uh, quite keen to do as much as they can to avoid it, even if it means that life is a bit miserable and totally clamped down on anything to avoid death. We look pretty frightened of it at the moment. And all this shows up. What good news we have that there's such a thing as eternal life. That we can offer to people life that is not snuffed out by death. And it's possible to be confident that you have it. How needful it is for us to be confident we have that life that cannot be snuffed out by COVID or anything. It's eternal And that's the subject of 1 John. So, would you come with me, please, to 1 John chapter 5 again. 1 John chapter 5. I want us to strengthen our confidence that we have eternal life uh, from verses 6 to 12 of 1 John 5. 1 John 5, verses 6 to 12. Verses 1 to 5 which Seth took us through right back in early December, they raised the subject of faith in Jesus. See it there in verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And see it again in verse 5. He who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. The subject is faith in Jesus, and our paragraph, verses 6 to 12, is going to go on to consider that faith with the aim, which is set out in verse 13, of strengthening our confidence we have eternal life. And to do that, our paragraph shows us the content of faith, the basis of faith, and the result of faith. So let's begin with the content of faith in verse 6. Now the subject is Jesus Christ, as I've just shown from verse 5. We believe that Jesus is the Son of God and he's described here in verse 6 as this is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. That is strange to us, very strange phrase, obviously meant more to the people then than it does to us today. The one who came by water and blood, what's he talking about? Well, to understand it, we need to remember that John was writing against false teachers who'd come into the church. It's a very positive letter to give us confidence, but it's also a very polemic letter. I like that word, polemic. It means that something that's written as an attack on someone. And it was an attack on false teachers who'd come into the church and sown confusion. And these false teachers had a basic outlook on life that was this. The spiritual is good and the physical is bad. 
That was their basic outlook. Spiritual is good, physical is bad. And if the physical is bad, well, the Son of God couldn't have become a physical man. No, he didn't become a physical man. Now you say, how could they have denied that the Son of God became a physical man? It's only a few years after Jesus. Well, they said, oh yes, yes, there was this physical man, Jesus, but he's not identical to the Son of God, the Christ. No, there was a physical man, Jesus, physically born, but then at his baptism, the Christ, the Son of God, came on him, like a spirit coming on a person. And then the Christ left him before he went through that nasty physical thing, the death on the cross. Oh no, the Son of God couldn't have had anything to do with that. That's physical. He was spiritual. And do you see, they've, they've split Jesus and Christ. There's the physical man and then there's the spiritual Son of God. And that's the reason we have this strange phrase here, the water and the blood, in verse 6. The water is the baptism of Jesus and the blood is the death of Jesus. I expect that latter one is fairly obvious to us or straightforward to us. For example, chapter 1, verse 7. The blood of Jesus, God's Son, purifies us from all sin. And I expect we're familiar with the blood there means the death of Jesus. And John is saying, the one who came from heaven, he's the one who was baptised and he's the one who died on the cross and shed his blood. It's one person. Jesus Christ, see there in verse 6, this is the one who came. He came by water in baptism and he came by blood in his death and he's one person, Jesus Christ. John unites the two names. Now, this probably all seems very odd to us because we don't have these people called Gnostics around uh, who had this strange teaching. But actually, there can be some tendencies like it today Probably most of us have talked about the spiritual and the physical as if they're opposites, which they're not in the Bible. Or we've probably heard this sort of thing, I certainly have, from churchgoers. I like the human Jesus, with his teachings of love your neighbour, but not that theological Christ of the Apostle Paul and all those doctrines. And people put a split between the two. And one John says, no, you can't split Jesus Christ like that. He puts them together. Puts them together. They're one person. Jesus the Christ. Well, actually, there's a far bigger, far more important point than that. And it's this. The subject here is faith. And we're being told faith must be in the person of Jesus Christ. Faith is all about Jesus Christ and you've got to get right who he is. You see, people had come to this church, or these churches that that John was writing to, and they'd sown confusion about who Jesus Christ was, and that would, if left alone, bring everything crashing down. Because they had cut at the base, the foundation, and that brings everything crashing down. My family have bought the game of Minecraft. Some of you might be familiar with Minecraft, computer game. And there is your little block man and goes around this world collecting things to survive and to make his home. And you can cut down trees. You're trying to get wood to make things. And you go and you cut at the base of the tree. And to our surprise, we found you can cut all the way through the tree and it leaves the rest of the tree floating in the air. 
We didn't have to run because it was about to fall on us. It just floats in the air. You've cut the base away completely. Well, we all know real life is not like Minecraft. Cut the base away and everything will fall down. And get wrong the base, who Jesus Christ is, and everything will fall down. Now, that doesn't mean you can't be a Christian without have it, unless you have a perfect understanding of the, of the doctrine of Christ. No, it doesn't mean that. But it does mean the essence of being a Christian is you have faith in the person of Jesus, as he's revealed in the Bible. You believe he's the saviour you need. You believe he's the son of God come in the flesh. You believe he's the promised Messiah. You believe he's the Lord now on the throne. That's the essence of a Christian. As, As I hope you all know, I'm all for us getting a good understanding of the mechanism of how the gospel works and how we get saved. But that's not what we depend on. We depend on this person, Jesus Christ. And so our faith at its heart is in him as a person. He's the saviour I need. There's the content of faith. That's in verse 6. Let's move on now to the basis of faith. This is verse 6 through to verse 10. The basis of faith. We need faith in Jesus. So we need a way to get it. So thank God the Father loves to show his Son. That's verse 9. Verse 9. We accept man's testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God which he has given about his Son. God loves to show his Son. How does he do it? Well, verse 8 tells us about three witnesses who testify. Testify is, is the sort of word for legal evidence. Witnesses in a law court, law court telling us about someone. And there are three witnesses here in verse 8. The spirit, the water and the blood. Let's have a think about them. And two of them go together, we've already seen, because they've come up in verse 6. The water and the blood. Let's think about them. The water and the blood are the historical evidence for Jesus. The life and the death of Jesus. He he lived and he was baptised. And there were people around and they saw him there in the water. And they heard a voice from heaven. And they recorded it. And their records agree. And we've got them written down in the Bible. And he died. And again, people saw it. It wasn't, as as Paul said to a Roman king, it wasn't done in a corner. It was something seen by many. And they wrote down what they saw and what they heard. And it was public. And that record has been passed down to us. The water and the blood are the historical record that we have as evidence passed down reliably to us. And we should even be reassured that it's been passed down reliably to us by the issue with verse 7. Do you know about the issue with verse 7? You might have a footnote in your Bible that tells you. If you've got an NIV like me, you've got a footnote, and you've got hardly anything to verse 7. Minus what? One, two, three, four, five, six words. But old English Bibles had... a Quite a substantial verse 7. 
that when something like this, there are three that testify in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And then it had verse 8, and there are three that testify on earth. And that verse was there in Old English Bibles because it had been there in Latin Bibles before because the Roman Catholic Church put pressure on that they wanted this verse in back in the Middle Ages. But it's not genuine. There are all sorts of reasons to believe that that verse is not genuine. It wasn't there originally written by the Apostle John. If you're interested in that, I can give you some pretty solid reasons for that afterwards. But far from making us worried about the Bible, this should reassure us. It should reassure us because it means enough manuscripts, old copies of the Bible have been found that we can be confident what should be in and what should not. What was originally written and what has been added or a mistake has been made. And it also says we've got enough confidence in this that we don't have to bury the evidence when mistakes have been made in the past. Unlike with Islam, it's clear from evidence that there were many variations of the Quran in the past, but Muslims have tried to bury the evidence for it because they, it goes against their belief and they must maintain the Quran has never been changed, it's impossible to change. But we don't have to bury any evidence because we've got good enough evidence that what we have is what was originally written. The historical record, the water and the blood, the life and the death of Jesus have been passed down to us as historical evidence that can reassure our faith in the Lord Jesus. But then we have today's evidence. It's not just history, it's today. Verse 8, there are three that testify. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit testifies still today. I like the way that in verse 6, the Spirit is called the, the truth. The Spirit is the truth. You might think of John chapter 14, where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. And then he promised another one like me is going to come. And here we're told he's the truth. And Jesus, at that same time, when he was talking to his disciples to reassure them because he was going to leave and he wanted their faith firm, he said, I'm going to send the Spirit of truth and he will testify of me. He said that in John 14. And the same thing in John 15. And again in John 16. The Spirit of truth who will testify of me. And the Apostle John had clearly taken it in because it's almost identical here. The Spirit who is the truth, he testifies of Jesus. And here is how we can have faith. Yes, this is highly linked with the historical evidence because it's the Spirit who enabled the apostles to write the historical evidence. So what we have was an accurate record of what Jesus did because the Holy Spirit guided and helped them. But the Holy Spirit still testifies today because he opens our eyes to see who Jesus is and he impacts our hearts with the word of God. And so verse 10 says there's a testimony in our hearts. Verse 10, 
Anyone who believes in the Son of God has this testimony in his heart. It's not just historical evidence on a page, but it's something that's got into the heart and impacted us. How does this work in practice? Well, that's a massive subject, but I will just try to say a little by the way of some examples. Years ago, before I ever came to Loughborough, I was doing a Bible study with some new Christians. They um, were a middle-aged couple who had been quite non-religious, nothing to do with Christianity, never turned up to church, and were converted. And what an encouragement it was to do Bible studies with them. And somehow, I can't remember how it came up, but I asked them the question, what is your reason for believing the Bible? And they couldn't really give me a good reason. And this rather worried me. They can't give me a good reason for why they believe the Bible. Well, it worried me at first until I realised what had happened. And what had had happened was something like this. They'd heard the gospel preached and the Holy Spirit had grabbed hold of them and made their conscience wake up and tell them, you need this Jesus. And here is truth that you need to put your trust in. And here is the person that you need to turn to. And they hadn't gone through lots of arguments about why this is true and why I must reject that. No, it's just the Holy Spirit had grabbed them as they heard the message preached. And then I thought, well, that shouldn't surprise me, because that's basically what happened to me. When I was in my late teens, yes, I, I did a lot of thinking about evidences that Jesus rose from the dead, and how is this world here, and how was it all made? And later, when I'd been a Christian for a year or two and went off to university and got into all sorts of debates, yes, going through those evidences again became very important. But but when I was about, I don't know, somewhere between 16 and 18, I can't remember, it's all a long time ago, the thing that really made the difference was the Holy Spirit just not leaving me alone. With this that was, it just got deep into me, you need to turn to Jesus. You need to put your trust in Jesus. It's no good carrying on how you are. You need to turn. There was this insistence, and that work of the Holy Spirit usually came as I was hearing the gospel preached. Now, I reckon this makes complete sense. God gives us reasons to believe. He gives us persuasion because he invented this world full of evidence and he gave us rationality. And so he doesn't just completely bypass that. But he also gives something that is not unreasonable, but it goes beyond reason. The Holy Spirit impacting us, getting to us, not leaving us alone. Otherwise, faith could never be certain. You'd always be thinking... What if someone cleverer comes along and persuades me out of this? Or you'd be very proud, wouldn't you? I've worked out the truth. I've figured it out. I'm better than other people. The work of the Holy Spirit reassures and humbles. And that's a great combination. The basis of our faith is historical, the life and death of Jesus, the water and the blood. And it's today, the work of the Holy Spirit coming and opening our eyes to that and softening our hearts. That's the basis of faith. And I reckon that basis of faith should give us confidence. 
Faith isn't a leap in the dark without evidence. And faith isn't something that's just left up to me. The Holy Spirit will work in me and help me and keep me believing. And I reckon that basis of faith also shows you what the unbelievers you care about need. I hope there are unbelievers you care about. What do they need? Well, they need to hear about the life and death of Jesus. And they need the work of the Holy Spirit in their hearts. Both. Now, it's obvious you can tell them about the life and death of Jesus, but I reckon you can also be involved in the work of the Holy Spirit in their hearts. Because I reckon it's something like this. Someone's been hit by a car and is lying on the road and is in a terrible way. And then you say, the ambulance came and saved him. Well, if you think about that literally, the ambulance didn't save him. The paramedic saved him. But the paramedic usually comes by ambulance. Might not, might be just happening to be down the road and notice and come running, but usually they come by ambulance. Well, the Holy Spirit is like the paramedic. It's the Holy Spirit who softens hearts and opens eyes and works faith in people. He's the paramedic, but he usually comes by what's his ambulance. It's the word of God. By the way, not always. It is possible for him to work separately from the word of God, but he usually comes by the word of God, the gospel being told. That's the ambulance. Where do you fit into this? Well, I hope you don't think this is pushing it too far, but you can be the ambulance driver, can't you? You can be the ambulance driver, the one who, by telling people the word of God, in a sense, gets the paramedic to them, to do his heart surgery, to give his testimony in their hearts, Jesus is the one you should trust. Okay, I hope you're managing to follow. We've had the content of faith and the basis of faith, and then we finish with the result of faith. The result of faith. We move into verses 10 to 12. There is so much hanging on this, um, on this faith in Jesus. The stakes are so high. Children, if you don't know what it means that the stakes are high, it's a, it's a gambling term, so ask your parents what it means. Hopefully they don't gamble. But this, the stakes are high. There is so much hanging on this. Do you have this faith in Jesus? Do you believe he is the Son of God become man? And he's the Saviour you need. And he's the Lord now on the throne. Because not believing, if you don't believe that, what's that like? Look at verse 10. Anyone who does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because he has not believed the testimony God has given about his son. Not believing is not morally neutral. Because God has given testimony. And you're saying it's not true. Which is to say God is a liar. And you cannot insult the God who is truth and who made you and God just be relaxed about it and say, oh well, me and you have a difference of opinion. I expect he'd get his grammar the right way round as well. You and me have a difference of... You and I? I don't know. But he wouldn't be relaxed about it. No, no. It's it's morally guilty. It's a sin. The stakes are so high. 
but we can put it more positively. Because believing in this Jesus, what does it lead to? Verse 10, anyone who believes in the Son of God has this testimony in his heart. What testimony? Verse 11, and this is the testimony, God has given us eternal life. It's the route to life. This faith in Jesus is the way of getting eternal life. So the question isn't, how strong is your faith? The question is, what do you think of Jesus? What do you think of Jesus? Do you think he's the saviour you need? Well, then God gives this testimony here in his Bible and in your hearts. He's given you eternal life. What's that eternal life like? Well, Verse 11 and 12 are wonderful verses. I'm just going to point out a couple of things from them. We can't go through them properly. Verse 11 and 12, what's this eternal life like? And this is the testimony. God has given eternal life and this life is in his son. And verse 12, this life is a matter of having the son. He who has the son has life. It's in his son and it's a matter of having the son. In other words, this life can't be found anywhere else except in Jesus. You won't find it in Muhammad. You won't find it in our society. You won't find it anywhere other than Jesus. Jesus has a monopoly on eternal life. He's the only one who sells it. You've got to go to him for it. But unlike most monopolies, he's giving it away for free. But it also means this, this life is in his son, it means you've got to go to Jesus for it, he's got the monopoly on it, but it also means this, this eternal life isn't just endless life. This eternal life isn't just life going on and on and on and on. It's a quality as well as a quantity. Because it's all about being in Jesus, being united to Jesus, knowing him, belonging to him. I read a story told that claimed to be true. I'm a bit sceptical. It's one of those ones you can never tell um, if it was true or not. And when I was preparing this, I couldn't find where I got the story from. But from my memory, it went something like this. There was a king, and he wanted a change from the way that no one related to him genuinely because he was king. He couldn't just relax with anyone and be himself with them because he's king. And so he would go secretly down into the kitchens And there was a servant there who scrubbed the floors and cleaned the pans. And the king would just sit and chat to this servant, secretly, no one else knowing. And this went on for years. This person became the king's friend who he could talk to and be himself with in a way that he couldn't with anyone else because everyone else just treated him as, well, he's the king. And after years of this, the king said to the servant, To state the obvious, I'm very rich and you're very poor. And I've really appreciated your friendship. What can I give you? What can I give you for all these years that you've been such a help to me? And the servant said, there's nothing. There's nothing that you could give that would be better than what you've given me already. Can you see why that is? The servant said, you've given me your friendship. And there's nothing you could give that would be better than that. Well, I think that's fairly obvious. That stands to reason. If the king comes and just is genuinely your friend, what's £100,000 compared with that? 
And this eternal life, yes, it is eternal, yes, it does go on forever, but the best thing about it isn't the quantity, it's the quality. It's that it's all about knowing Jesus and belonging to him and being one with him, union with him forever. Verse 12, he who has the Son has life. Notice that, he who has the Son has life, not will have it, but has it already. Already. Because the Son has already risen to new life. And if you're one with him, you've risen with him in God's eyes. And you're seated with him in God's eyes. And you're one with him just as accepted as he is. Just as loved as he is. Just as secure as he is. So if the Son has life, well, you've got this life. And it's eternal. And you can't have it today and not have it in February. Because it's eternal. Verse 11 and 12 are magnificent. It's no wonder that John follows them with verse 13. I'm writing these things so you can be confident you have eternal life. Because he's given us the content and it's all about Jesus. He's given us the basis. It's both historical, objective, and it's today the subjective witness of the Spirit. And he's given us the result. And it's all in Jesus and we have it already. Do you have this confidence that you have eternal life? Let's pray for that now. Lord God, thank you that you are such a great giver. You give eternal life because you've given your son. And he's the one who's defeated death and he has this eternal life. And we're united to him if our faith is in him. Uh, So, Father, may we have confidence that we have this eternal life, that we're in Jesus Christ, that we have the Son. And if there's anyone here who doesn't yet have that faith, please may the Holy Spirit do that work of opening their eyes, of softening their hearts, of impacting them with your words, of persuading them of who Jesus is, of giving them eternal life and giving them confidence that coronavirus or a car accident or nothing can take it away. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.